Uh, I hope you've had the opportunity to sort of track along with us as we've been going through Matthew chapter 13 and taking a look at these parables. Uh, We've had the opportunity in the small groups uh, to spend some time considering some of the other parables that are not found in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, uh, I think that's been uh, a fruitful endeavor uh, that we've undertaken. Uh, We spent some time in the small groups sort of... um, reading some of the other parables, um, sort of applying that technique that we talked about of, of thinking about what the original hearers might have heard and what is the main point and uh, what is, how should our perspective change. And we've done that a couple times uh, in the small groups, and uh, it's been really encouraging. It's been encouraging to me um, to see God's people coming together and uh, doing what he's called us to do, which is to... Um, uh, be renewed by his word in the context of uh, community, right? That's, um, it's a powerful thing that God does through his spirit as we look at his word together. So grateful, hopefully you've been, been blessed by that. Uh, we've, we come now here uh, to this next parable that we're going into, and we've looked at four parables thus far, right? So if you've been tracking along, you probably should be able to name them, right? The parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed. Last week, we talked about the parable of the yeast. Now, as you think about those parables, they kind of fall into a bucket together in that through them, Jesus was explaining the nature of his kingdom. How does the kingdom operate? How does it grow? externally, internally. And now we come here to the fifth parable of Matthew chapter 13, which Silas was kind enough to read for us, and we see that is of the, about the hidden treasure. And the next parable, which we're going to look at next week, the parable of the pearl, they kind of go together, and that focus shifts a bit from those first four parables talking about the the nature of the kingdom, the operation of the kingdom, and the growth and the external and internal growth of the kingdom, there's a shift now to the value of the kingdom, the cost of the kingdom. And really, at the highest level, when you think about what we are to see here, Uh, Nothing in the universe, nothing in the universe could match the priceless value of the kingdom of God. That it's worth more than anyone could ever even imagine or comprehend. Infinitely more than whatever price range you might think about, that any of us could ever think to afford if you were to give everything you have you have and everything you will have it would still not be enough to merit entry into the kingdom of god think about it and this is not just the idea that we get here from this parable Uh, If you look throughout Scripture, this is the idea that we get. It's crystal clear. 
You can't buy your way in. In fact, in some ways, it, it, it kind of works the opposite way. Those who might be well-resourced and, and rich or even just uh, their focus and their obsession might be with wealth, you're actually at a disadvantage, it seems, from the perspective of the heavenly kingdom. Jesus is going to say later on in Matthew chapter 19, which I think we're all familiar with what he says, it's easier for a camel to go through, what, the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Scripture also says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So, to be enthralled with wealth leaves a person unfit for the kingdom, even if the person isn't wealthy, right? Because it's not just about the wealth, but the enthrallment about wealth, the focus, the hyper-focus of the heart and the mind. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, 24, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Trust in riches, whether you have them or not. Trust in riches. Well, in addition to that, the kingdom also does not belong to those who might be self-righteous. So this is a different type of wealth, if you will. This is like a self-righteous wealth. I take that to mean anyone who thinks that their religiosity or morality or, or, or education or humanitarianism, or philanthropy, or environmentalism, or political viewpoint, or anything else might earn you merit with God. Well, how do we know this is true, right? How do, how do we know this, this, this won't work? Because God's law, the demand of God's law, is, is really straightforward. It is. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus summed it up pretty well when he said, you must be holy just as your Father in heaven is holy. Or in other translation, you must be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In James... James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is what? Guilty of all. Guilty of all. So the law is pretty clear. What does it do? The Lord con condemns us. It condemns us all. Why? Because... We fall so far short. We fall so far short of that. So think about this with me for a moment. How arrogant, how arrogant of a presumption is it that fallen sinners could sufficiently satisfy the perfect standard of righteousness 
of God or somehow win his favor by trying to cover over our guilt with imperfect works. Think about the arrogance of that. To think that somehow we could do that. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness is like what? All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. You'd have a better chance of, of buying every palace and mansion on earth than gaining entry into the kingdom of heaven by your own merit. And this should, all, this should not be new to us. This sort of thinking should not be new to us, especially if we were paying attention to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because what is the attitude of all true citizens of the kingdom? How does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. They recognize and they confess what? Their utter spiritual poverty. They know that they are unworthy sinners. The law condemns us. We're, we are unworthy. If you end the story there, that's a, it's, that's a pretty sad story. <laughs> but this is why Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sinless, Lamb of God had to make the only possible atonement for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. To get to the bottom of the glory of that verse alone would take us a really long time. What happened? In effect, Christ paid the kingdom's entry fee in full for those who believe in his name. Because he is the only one who could pay such an unimaginably high price and it was a great price it was his very life worth more than all the gold all the material riches you could compile together peter puts it like this in first peter chapter one you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You were not redeemed with corruptible things. So why would we put our trust in corruptible things? Jesus paid the price in full. That's what was signified when he says, what from the cross? It is 
finished. It's finished. So, all who enter the kingdom, they do so uh, freely, right? Prophet Isaiah talks about without money, without price. How do we enter? By grace, through faith. Not by any virtue or, or merit of our own. Yet, as we're about to see in the parable that we just looked at, and really the parable that we'll look at next week, they kind of go together. Genuine faith, genuine faith never fails to appreciate the cost, the cost of salvation. What our de deliverance from sin's curse and bondage cost Christ. What it means to be bought by Christ, redeemed. What it means to be bought by Christ and to, to bow to His Lordship. And above all, how valuable, how valuable redemption is in terms of its eternal worth to you as a sinner. So there is a bit of a paradox here, right? Jesus paid the price in full, and yet it's not inconsistent to urge people to count the cost of entering the kingdom, to consider it. And that's really kind of the point it's the, the, of this parable here is to kind of draw our, our attention, open our eyes to that cost. He's urging all who would enter the kingdom to consider what it might cost you. What is the cost to enter God's kingdom? So, uh, if, again, if we look back at the previous parables, we see what kind of motifs has Jesus, has Jesus been using. He's deep into agriculture, right? He's been seeds and wheat and farming and harvest and plowing and plucking and all that stuff. Very common to the people that he was talking to, right? Very common to them. And then even last week, he gets into cooking and baking and yeast and eating and food, all very uh, common for the people of the time. And this is how Jesus' parables work. Now, we come to the parable we just heard, and we read it, and we might go, whoa. Jesus, you're coming out of left field with this one. What are we talking about in this parable? Buried treasure. Buried treasure. I don't know how often you think about buried treasure. I don't, <laughs> unless... My daughter comes to me and with uh, you know, she's watched something on the TV and it's, she comes with a map and there's a bunch of dashes and then there's an X and she says, let's go look. There's actually a book, that one of the books that we read is about buried treasure. That's the only time I ever think about buried treasure. So we hear Jesus switch to this motif and in our, our modern ears hear this and go, oh, Jesus, is he's somehow come out of left field with this thing, right? He's going to be talking about pirates any second now. Right, but 
To our ears, to our modern ears, this sounds like an unusual sort of story. But, as usual, Jesus was really talking about something that, did, that happened in Palestine at that time. So, Palestine at that time was a place of a lot of tumult, right? A lot of war, if you will. At that time, in Jesus' time, you know, it wouldn't be surprising for just a uprising or a, or a battle or something, uh, you know, to happen just in your garden in the back. All of a sudden, whoa, what's going on? For your house, your field, your land, your area, for there just to be a, uh, a, a battle, an uprising, and your house to, could be easily just looted, right? You have to think of the, the time and the place. So how do you protect your stuff? Where do, we, where do we keep our assets? Where are they, right? Modern day, right? You drop it in a bank, right? Or you, you know, invest in securities or bonds or it's in real estate or it's something like that, right? Not so back then. Really, most, most folks didn't have just dis- dispensable valuable items. Most of their, their worth was tied up in the land. You'd have to be kind of pretty well off to have extra valuable things, jewelry and things like that. But if you did and you wanted to keep it safe, what do you do? You start digging. You start digging. You put it in the ground. It was one of the commonest ways to preserve one's property. The rabbis of the time had a saying that went something like, there is only one safe place for money, the earth. The earth. So when you think about that and you think about the context of the time, now when Jesus says this story, this was not an improbable thing that could happen. You go back into the ancient uh, record, you can actually see instances and stories circulating about this very type of thing happening. All right, so let's think about what happened. Now, I think for some of us, we read it, I know I read it, and I hear him finding, this, this person finding the treasure, and we'll get to some of the other potential background around it, but just right off the bat, they find the treasure, and they, 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 what do they do? They, they hide it again, and then they go and buy the field. Now, I think if you read it as I read it, you would hear it and kind of go, hmm, is this shady business going on? This sounds a little odd he immediately conceals it and rushes off to buy the field without revealing what is in it sounds maybe somewhat questionable well if you look into some of the Jewish cultural laws of the time they had a very sort of fancy take to this type of situation you know what it was Finders keepers. Very fancy, I know. Very 
very, very difficult for us to, uh, us to understand, right? But that's basically what, basically what it was. The Jew Jewish cultural laws seem to go that way, that if this situation were to arise, if you found it, it was yours. So maybe not so much moral funny, f funny business here, uh, potentially, right, as you, were, as you were thinking about it. So let's, let's take a look at this discovery, right? And let's think about some of the elements of this discovery. Because this is, this is a short parable, right? So what we don't want to do is allegorize it too much, right? And try and go in and say every little detail connects to this. But le let's think about some of the characteristics about the discovery of this treasure. The first thing that stands out to me is the sort of accidental nature of this discovery. Seemingly, it happens as the man is not really looking for it. Right? And this is going to be in some sort of distinction to the next parable. But in this case, it's seemingly as though he's not necessarily looking for this treasure, but he comes upon this treasure. You look and you think there are many ways that people have come to Christ. Um, many times it's, it seems like there are folks who have come across Christ and it seemed totally almost by accident. Seems like it's by chance. We we serve a sovereign God and we know him to be sovereign. We, we know that's not true, but I'm sure you can think of, of stories, right? Your story may, may be something of that sort. The circumstances align in such a way and you go, well, look, look, what, I've <laughs> look what I've found. This sort of unexpected nature of the kingdom you see examples of it in Scripture. The one I think of that I think kind of jumps out to me a little bit is Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. Now, who was he? And what's a Cyrene? Okay. <laughs> so Cyrene is a place, right? It's actually um, a city in what would be modern-day northern Africa, Libya, if you will. So we know Simon, Simon, we don't know that much about him. We presume that he was a Jewish man who was living there in North Africa. There was an established uh, Jewish colony there in that area at that time. And we know that for any Jew in that area at the time surrounding, um, you know, Jerusalem, the, the homeland, they would have an ambition, right? Any Jew who was far away from Jerusalem, they, ha they would have an ambition to once in a lifetime attend the Passover in Jerusalem. So Jews who were ab abroad would have to do what? Kind of scrape and pinch and just scrape together the every last bit and save for half their life maybe 
to make that possible. So we can surmise that this was potentially something that Simon of Cyrene did. And he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. You can imagine him. And he's making his way to the holy city. And he's making his way to the sacred temple. And then he is interjected into the story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. And where does Simon find himself? Carrying Jesus' cross. Somewhat unexpected. The man in this parable, he wasn't looking for the treasure. Right, so it was, again, it's not accidental in the sense that it's without cause or purpose, right? Because we believe and know our God to be sovereign. No accidents with God. But the point is that the dis dis discovery was somewhat sudden, right? Somewhat un unexpected. Unprecedented. It happened and one person's life is, is altered. I think also about Saul. I think of his story. Where, where was Saul off to when his life changed? He wasn't off to prayer meeting or small group, right? He's on the way to Damascus to do some harm to Christians. On his way to kill Christians when his life was changed, right? He made this unexpected discovery that radically changed his life. And again, if we go back to cost and you go back to value, and again, those ideas are important for this parable. When you encounter Christ and when you come into the kingdom, there's a rebalancing of your life that is undertaken. There, there should be. There should be a recalculating of your life. There's some new and different kind of math when you come into the kingdom. And I'm not talking about common core math and whatever we're doing with our kids, that crazy stuff. I have no idea what it is. This is a different type of math. Easier. Because we see from Paul that when he has this experience, he actually speaks to us about the recalculation in his life that he does. If you look in, in Philippians, when he's writing to the Philippian church, he talks about his initial accounting, the things that he valued, the things that he was valuing. Right? He talks about his pedigree. He says, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Right? He's saying that you know, I was a Jew's Jew. He says, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I followed it to the T. I knew it in my head. As far as zeal, I was so zealous for the Jewish faith that I was persecuting Christians. Legalistic righteousness, faultless. That means you look at all the things and I was checking off all the boxes. That was the math I was doing. I was saying this plus this plus this, my heritage, my, my thinking, my, my righteousness, I add it all up. That's the math he was doing. 
what's the recalculation that he did? In Philippians 3, 7, and 8, he continues and says, here, and here it is. Here, listen to the recalculating. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surprising greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for, whom, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. It's different math. The math is different. The math is really something like this, right? It's, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the math of the kingdom. Way easier than common core math. I think we can get that, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The math Paul was doing was my heritage, mine plus my knowledge plus my intelligence plus, plus this, that, and the other. This is going to get me righteousness. This is going to get me where I need to go spiritually. But when he encountered Christ, the math changed. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In fact, if you attempt to add anything to Jesus, what happens? It doesn't work, right? You ever be working on a calculator? Boom, 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 equals error. Yeah, so on the kingdom calculator, you go Jesus plus and you add anything else there, guess what you get in the kingdom calculator? <clears throat> Error. Does not compute. Does not work. Paul said it. He considered all that other stuff rubbish that he might gain Christ. So what do, we, what do we take from these examples of this sort of unexpected nature of, of people coming to Christ, this sort of almost ac seemingly accidental? What do we take from it? Well, for me, the explanation is God is looking for us even before we look for him. Why do we love him? He first loved us, right? So, so that's the first thing that pops out, this sort of accidental, unexpected nature of this discovery. There's another thing that, that emerges here, I think, and that is that um, this discovery happens while something very ordinary is happening. The implication here that we get, and we don't have a lot here, it's just one verse, right? But the implication here is that um, this man was working this field, right? Not his own field. We know that. Why? Because he goes and he buys it. The implication here is this man was, was working this field, that it was at his day's work that this man found the treasure. Again, not necessarily looking for it, right? He's there. He's working the field. You know, he's plowing or whatever, raking or, or tilling the soil. He's gone, duh, duh, 
He's going over here, and then it's like, oh, what's that? He hit, he hit something. Finds this treasure. His world is changed. But what was he doing while that happened? He's just doing something very, very ordinary. He's just, 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 just doing the things of his daily life. And here's the thing, as unexpected as the, the nature of the kingdom can be, what would it look like if we understood that the kingdom can be found in the ordinary moments of your everyday life? I think we box God in by saying, well, yeah, it's, it's in the unexpected, the, you know, unplanned stuff that God, that, that's when God is working. Really? We're going to put, put God in a box that he only works when something unplanned or unexpected happens? Guess what? He's working in the, in the ordinary just as much. You know why? Because he's God. Yet, are we on the lookout? Are we ready and prepared for that? Or do we have that understanding that even within the ordinary of our daily life, the daily things that we do, that the kingdom can be found? It's a challenge, though. Discontentment, right, is rearing its ugly head left and right, you know, spend enough time on social media and, you know, be discontented. It doesn't, doesn't take long. So what happens? How do we, how do we diminish God's working in the ordinary? Well, we, we, we say, well, I have this thing. And we go, No, they have that thing. So what do we say? God, I want that thing. The question we don't ask is, God, how can I see your kingdom in this thing, the thing that I have? Discontentment comes in, and we're so caught up with the thing that we don't have, and we are trying to grasp after that, that just in the ordinariness of what we have, we are unable to see, uh, we're not unable to see the grace of God. It, it could be, you know, I, I, you know I, I live here, or, you know, I'm in this house, and then. But we could look over there and say, oh, man, they got that house. <laughs> or they live there. Oh, I want to live there. God, I want to live there. I want to be in that house. And our focus and our mind and our, and our heart and our energy all shifts that way. And then what? We, we miss out. We say, God, how can you use me in this house? How can you use me in this place where I am right now? We will be preoccupied with what we do not have, right? The same thing with what, what we're doing, right? We say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this right now. This is the job. This is the job that I have. And we look over there and say, oh, they have that job. That's, that's the job I want. That's the job I want. 
spend all our energy and our hearts, motivation and attention starts going to, I want that. I want that job. I want to be doing that. And then we never go, God, with what I'm doing right now, how can I see the kingdom right now? Because the kingdom can be found in, in the most ordinary of moments as well. Right? It's not in longing for some other task than our own, but in doing our own faithfully that we find our purpose in God and our purpose in the kingdom. So there, when you read it, right, definitely it's an unexpected moment. Um, it is a somewhat, though, ordinary moment as it's happening. The last sort of idea is that it really was a, a crucial moment. And as we'll come to, to, to close here in a moment. What, what do we see? It feels like there's some haste, right? It fe- I mean, it's just one verse, right? So, but to me, it feels like there's some haste built into here. The man in the parable he seizes the crucial moment when it came. When he found the treasure, and, and probably he didn't even take the time to what? To even examine the whole thing. He finds it and he goes, stuff it back down and let's go buy it. Sold everything and bought it, right? He acted, he acted on this moment, this crucial moment. I think one of the one of the warnings one of the warnings for us here is and dangers in life is that we might be moved by by something right we might have that inkling to 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 move and then because of fear fear of man because of any number of other things we don't act we don't act And then that, that sort of, that impulse that, you know, might go away in that moment, right? But if we're going to possess the treasure of the kingdom, we must act. We must seize those great moments, however unexpectedly they may come, however they might come in the ordinary sort of day-to-day of our lives, Right, they're not, they're, those those moments are not going to come in the la- laziness and the and the vainness of wanting something we don't have. It's not going to be found there, but we must seize it. We must seize it. And, and and to me, right, I think about this man, and I think about what he does, and I imagine him getting all his money together and all of his possessions, and he goes to buy this thing, how is everybody looking at this man when he goes to go do this? This guy's crazy. You're gonna go buy this field? It's not even that great of a field. You're nuts. 
you're gonna give up that and that and that and that and that and that thing you love that thing you're gonna give up all of that and you're gonna go get this dumpy field over here that's your plan you're crazy you're crazy here's the thing here's the twist right we know what the man knows we know what he knows it's the beauty of this parable is that when you look at the the, the people's responses to this man, you imagine that they don't know what he knows, but we know what he knows. What does he know? The treasure is in the field. So he's not... Is he foolish? Is he foolish? No. He is sound in his right mind. He is wise beyond belief. That's what we know. We can see that. We have that window. So what would be foolish? What would be what would be the foolish action then? It would be for him to find that, come back to his stuff, right? Start gathering it all together, and then going, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna buy this thing. And he goes, here, take this, and here, take this, and here, take this, and here. Oh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. Am I really? Am I really gonna trade this in at this moment? Maybe I. Maybe I won't. What's foolish? That's foolish. That's foolish. So here's the question for us: What are you holding on to? If we talk about how our perspective might be changed this morning, what are you holding on to? What is it in your life that you look at and you say, well, I'm not sure about this. Could be anything, only you know. The thing that's holding you back from giving everything your wealth your status your reputation your whatever it is what are you holding on to because if you understood the value and the cost you would give it up and if you're not willing to give it up you have not understood the cost What did it cost Christ? Everything. Everything. It cost him everything, so eternal life costs you nothing, and yet it frees you to give him everything. I, I said it was kind of paradoxical, but it's true. It cost him everything, so eternal life costs you nothing, but it frees you. You are freed now to give him everything. But give him everything how? How? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. 
than in his what? Joy. In his joy. In his joy. He sells everything. He gave everything so that eternal life costs you nothing, but it frees you to give him everything, not begrudgingly, but out of joy. You are freed to give it up to him in joy. My prayer is that God's holy word would challenge your heart this morning, that whatever it is that you are holding on to, that you would give it unto God and you would understand the value and the cost of his great kingdom. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.